Good morning. Thank you for your patience as I navigate the poinsettias. You can see whether or not we ironed our pants well now that we don't have a, a pulpit here. It's odd, admittedly. We are going to be in Matthew chapter 2 this morning. Matthew chapter 2. I hope if you weren't able to join us last night that you can join us tonight. Um, that's why the stage is the way that it is. We are thankful, as we even prayed and recognized last week and this morning, uh, for just the, the skill set that God has uh, given those in our church and that we can do this. Matthew chapter 2, and, and really today we're going to be working through the book of Matthew. And admittedly, if turning to different passages in Scripture, if you use a hard copy, We'll be doing a little of that, but you don't have to, I suppose. Uh, the reason being is because we're going to be doing somewhat of a survey of Matthew in light of what we're going to see in Matthew chapter 2. Okay? So, um, if you have a digital copy, all you have to do is you know, just push with your thumb and away you go. But from a hard copy standpoint, we'll be turning a little bit, and you can follow along. Uh, I certainly don't want you to just take my word for it. This is God's word. I want you to see it for yourself. That's, that's really what our heart is uh, from the word, that, that you can see it for yourself. Um, so happy 800th anniversary. I don't know if you know, but today or, or this year, I should say, is the 800th anniversary of something. So if you're doing your math, 800 years ago was 1223. That's a big time in church history. And it's a significant time for you, even though you don't realize necessarily what it is. I'm about to tell you. Happy 800th anniversary for the nativity scene. The first record that we have of a nativity scene is in 1223. And it's credited to Francis of Assisi. Now, Francis of Assisi, one of the uh, saints uh, in church history, lived in Italy... He traveled through a place and often stayed in a place called Grecia. And in Grecia, in 1223, he was going through a bit of depression. He was really struggling spiritually. And so as it got closer to the end of the year, uh, he and several others thought it would be a good idea to create a reenactment of the birth of Christ. And so what they did was he and several others, they, they, there was a cave there, and he brought an actual ox, an actual donkey, and got some straw, got a real man and a real woman. This was a live nativity. A real man and a real woman and a real baby. And they got a real manger and put that real baby in the manger. And the baby slept for about half the service. And then Francis is, is delivering basically what would have been like a Christmas Eve service or that, that they'd call it a Christmas Eve mass. And so he's teaching and, and really trying to bring to life the Christmas story. And so the baby wakes up halfway through and is doing what babies do, and the animals kind of react. And, and you know, the church really thought this was a great idea. And, and so when you drive down the road today and you see a nativity scene, you can think back to 800 years ago when this first started. Now, depending on the culture, Nativity scenes included various figures. In Francis's nativity scene, there weren't any shepherds. Um, there weren't any sheep. There weren't any wise men. There weren't any camels. 
And depending on you know where you're from, nativity scenes can have a lot of those cam or a lot of those characters, I should say. Now I don't I don't know about you. I have a nativity scene where my family has a nativity scene at home, and uh, it was given to us by a next door neighbor. He actually made the stall, and uh, he has these characters. And so each year we set it up and we think of our next door neighbor who's passed away and and um, so we set this up and and we have you know baby Jesus in the manger and you have Mary and Joseph and you have the shepherds and you have some sheep and some little straw and you have the wise men and maybe you have some camels and and you know they're carrying their gifts the wise men are and and, and like standard standard you know nativity scene fair if you were to rewind to the actual time of Christ's birth there would have been two things about what we consider to be familiar nativity scenes that would have been off. Two things. First of all, who's there? And then second of all, who's not there? Okay? So first of all, it would have been off to have magi from the east greeting the king of the Jews. Not only that, there would have been some characters conspicuously absent. Like if there were any people that would have greeted the king of the Jews, the Messiah, certainly it would have been the religious leaders of the day. Yet, in our nativity scenes, here we have the Magi and their camels, non-Jews, and we're missing... Israel's spiritual leaders. No chief priests, no rabbis in your, your, your nativity scenes. Well, today what we're going to do is we're going to look at Matthew 2, and we're going to see, look at the story of the Magi coming to greet the birth of the Messiah. But we're going to trace two themes that run through Matthew. And they kind of run parallel to one another. Okay? One theme is this. To the Jews... We are going to see how Matthew's emphasis was that there were those who should have recognized Messiah's coming, yet they were the ones that rejected Jesus as Messiah. That's one theme. But then we're also going to trace another theme, which is that those who, from the Jewish standpoint, would have been overlooked. They'd have been outside the Jewish people or relatively insignificant within Israel, yet these people become followers of Jesus. Okay? So, I don't mean to be irreverent. But if we think of the nativity scene as kind of the welcome to earth greeting for Jesus, for the Messiah. Welcome to earth. There would have been the Magi, who frankly are kind of like the uninvited guests, But then there's also Israel's spiritual leadership, which are kind of like the conspicuously absent hosts. Okay? So, let's look at Matthew 2. We'll read this passage, and we'll make some application as we trace those two themes through the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, In the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. 
Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers or leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star, which they had seen in the east, went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house... They saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. So let's start with prayer. And we'll look at the uninvited guests and the conspicuously absent hosts. Father, thank you for the blessing that comes from your word. And so I pray that it would be clear and accurate. Father, I pray that the Holy Spirit might use it not only to inform us, but or to change us. May we, from a familiar story, from familiar characters, Lord God, may we be more than just greater in our familiarity and certainly, Lord, would we be more than just greater in our sentimentality? Rather, Lord, through your word, may we grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior and become more like him. May we look and act more like Jesus Christ. Through your word, through your spirit, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So the uninvited guests. These are the ones that were the Gentiles. These were the Magi. Now, what do we know about the Magi? What do we know about the Magi? Well, when you think of Magi, you know, we sing a song, We Three Kings. Perhaps you think kings. Uh, perhaps you think of, you know, men traveling on camels. I really think, just after, after doing uh, some research this past week and just looking at different sources, I really think a best way of looking at the Magi is kind of thinking of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You remember Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego way back in the book of Daniel? They were captured by Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar and taken to the Babylonian Empire. Okay? And during that time, they, through the power of God, ascended to a position of influence. To where they were actually leaned on by Nebuchadnezzar for their wisdom. Daniel interpreted dreams. And so the Magi were probably similar to that cast of characters that Daniel and the other three would have been with. Joseph is kind of another point of comparison. You know how Joseph back in Exodus, you know, he was captured, thrown in prison, but then interpreted the dream for Pharaoh because the other advisors, the other counselors weren't able to do as much. That's kind of the picture of what the Magi would have been. They were astronomers slash astrologers. Okay? Matter of fact, the word magi, if you just put a C after it, that says magic. 
Okay, we kind of get our word magic from it. Why? Because they're dealing with a lot of omens and visions, and they're dealing a lot with signs and wonders, looking at the stars. And yet they were also leaned upon heavily by the leadership there to be able to provide counsel for the affairs of the day. Now, when we see these magi, we learn a lot about them by, first of all, where they go. Where do they go? Well, they're from the east, and they're coming to Jerusalem. Why are they coming to Jerusalem? It's because they have been made known that the king of the Jews was born. And they assumed that the people in Jerusalem, of all people, would know where that king is. You see, they were asking, where is he, born king of the Jews? They assumed people knew where he was. And yet, the whole city kind of grew in its uh, frustration, perhaps. In verse 3, it says, when the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with them. They were, they were troubled. This was concerning about them. We haven't heard of any birth of a king of the Jews. So God, by some way, revealed to these individuals, these magi, that the king of the Jews had been born. And so they were coming to the center of Judaism, Jerusalem. And they were coming, trusting that they would find the right answer. But they weren't just coming to get an answer. Look at verse 2 as well. We have seen his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. What does this tell us? Well, this tells us that they were, just look, they were looking for more than just a historical figure in Israel's Jewish history. No, they were looking for a divine person. Because they were coming not to just find him, they wanted to worship him. They understood the divine nature of who it was that they were seeking. And not only that, as we read the story, we see that they came not to get, but to give. They came with gifts. And in this culture, you have to take into consideration that giving gifts was kind of like a mutual thing. They would bring gifts, but they would also have gifts given to them. As far as we can tell, Mary and Joseph didn't have much to give them. They showed up, they gave gifts, they left empty-handed, save for the whole purpose of them coming to begin with, that God had allowed for them to see and find the king of the Jews. And in fact, as you keep reading in Matthew chapter 2, we see that God was with them. Verse 12, and having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country to another way. God was with them. So as we're given this context, this story that's not included in Luke's, not included in Luke's account, it's only here in Matthew, Mark doesn't include it, John doesn't include it. What we see Matthew, the author here doing, is he's foreshadowing a future of unlikely followers of Jesus. He's foreshadowing that, yes, the king of the Jews had come to his people, but there would be those who, from a Jewish standpoint, would be unlikely followers, starting in chapter 2 with Magi coming from the east. In chapter 3, we're introduced to John, he was a Jew, a cousin of Jesus, but not a rabbi, not wearing phylacteries, not in the temple, 
No, he was wearing skins of animals and eating honey and insects. And as he was doing this, he was fulfilling the prophecy of Malachi, proclaiming the way of the Lord, but then also calling down those religious leaders for their hypocrisy. You see, in Matthew chapter 3, we're also introduced to the tone with which Matthew would have his readership see those religious leaders. What does John call them? You brood of vipers. This wasn't a friendly conversation. Yet John was an unlikely proclaimer of the king of the Jews. In chapter 8, we're introduced to a centurion whose child was sick. Centurion, worker for Rome. Not part of the Jewish culture. Yet coming to Jesus and proclaiming that I believe you can heal my child and you don't even have to come to my house. You know, I, I'm in charge of people. I can say go and they'll go. You can do the same thing in healing my child. And what does Jesus say? In all of Israel, I have not seen a faith like this. In chapter 9, you have the namesake of this book, Matthew. What did Matthew do prior to being a disciple of Jesus Christ? He was a tax collector. And upon his conversion, Jesus eats with Matthew and his co-workers and peers and friends, much to the chagrin of the Jewish leadership. Again, unlikely followers of Jesus Christ. In chapter 15, we have another Gentile, a Canaanite woman whose child was demon-possessed. And she pleads with Jesus in chapter 15, please, will you come and heal my child? And really in an odd circumstance, Jesus just kind of keeps walking. And the disciples say, Jesus, make this woman go away. And she's pleading and pleading and pleading with Jesus. And in chapter 15, Jesus says, I've been called to the lost sheep of Israel. It's not appropriate to give bread to the dogs. And yet this woman says, oh, but wait, even the dogs feed off the crumbs from the table. And Jesus marvels and praises her faith as a Gentile and says, your child is well. In chapter 27, at the foot of the cross, we have Jews mocking him, calling out, you said you could tear down the temple in three days, yet you can't even save yourself. And yet you have another centurion looking at Christ and saying, truly, this was the Son of God. Amen. And then in chapter 27 and 28, of all of the eyewitness testimonies to have for the most incredible miracle of all, the resurrection of Jesus, in this culture, women wouldn't be selected out to say, that's an eyewitness that we want to rely on. No, they actually would have been discredited. And yet, what does Jesus do? Through the scripture, he reveals that these women were followers of Jesus and followed his death from a distance and were the first eyewitnesses to his resurrection. Matthew ends his gospel account just like he began it. Both Jew and Gentile would come and worship Jesus. Chapter 28, Jesus tells his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations. The Magi, in chapter 2, here at Christmas, the Magi were the first Gentiles recorded by Matthew to come to Christ. 
And most of us here fit that description. We're Gentiles. We have become followers of Jesus Christ. But remember that when it comes to the welcome to earth gathering for Jesus, the Magi were probably closer to guests that weren't invited rather than guests of honor. In Matthew's day, it would have been the spiritual leadership that we would assume would be there to greet the king of the Jews, right? They would have hosted a grand celebration. The religious leadership, the Messiah is coming. They were looking for him. The townspeople were talking about him. When would the Messiah come? Maybe he's here. Maybe he's there. Certainly they would roll out the proverbial red carpet for him, right? Isn't that what the religious leaders were trained to do? Like, they knew the scriptures best of all. They were the ones that led worship. And yet, what do we see? We see them conspicuously absent from the worship of Jesus Christ. So, we go from the magi in this story to the chief priests and rulers in this story. The conspicuously absent hosts. Back in Matthew chapter 2, we see these characters introduced. Verse 4, gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, Herod inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. Now, what do we know about these chief priests and leaders? First of all, we know they're accurate. They got the answer right. Verse 5, they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea. They knew their Bibles, as it were. They knew the Old Testament. They quote from Micah. Micah 5, verse 2. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. We know that these men were well trained. These were individuals who knew where the Messiah was to be born. And geographically, they weren't far away. Jerusalem and Bethlehem, probably about five, six miles away. Not far. Not a long walk. Jerusalem was stirred up by the Magi's question, and so the Magi assumed, we assumed that they would have heard about his birth and where it would have been. But what we see about these religious leaders isn't just their accuracy, it's their apathy. It's their apathy. Why didn't they follow the Magi? Why didn't they go? The whole city knew about it. Herod asked them about it. Why didn't they follow the Magi? Why didn't they at least send some underling to kind of go along with them? I mean, it's almost one of those questions that's hidden in plain sight. Like, if you think of those who would have been the most interested, theoretically, in the birth of the Messiah, wouldn't it have been these individuals? And yet, they give them the answer, it's back to business, whatever their business was. How sad. And yet, as I mentioned before, Matthew introduces the religious leaders, Israel's spiritual leadership here in this way, really as foreshadowing 
for how they would respond to Christ up until his death and even after his resurrection. Just as Matthew used the Magi as foreshadowing for the unlikely followers of Jesus, Matthew here uses the chief priests and rulers to foreshadow the response that they would have towards Jesus. After Matthew 2, as I mentioned before, John the Baptist calls them a brood of vipers. In chapter 7, Jesus warns his listeners of false prophets, those who wear sheep's clothing, but inwardly are wolves. They look like a good tree, but they bear bad fruit. When Jesus tells the paralyzed man that his sins are to be forgiven, remember the one lowered through the roof of a house? Is it the chief priests and rulers who celebrate the miracle? Oh, no. They look at Jesus' words. Who are you to say you can forgive sins? In that same chapter, they accuse Jesus of using Satan as a means of casting out demons. And they do that again in chapter 12. Jesus performs miracles in these cities, in the synagogues, Bethsaida, Chorazin, Capernaum, Nazareth, even his hometown. And what does Jesus say? It's going to be better for Tyre, Sidon, Sodom, and Gomorrah. Outwardly pagan Gentile cities. It's going to be better for them than it will be for you. Because what you saw, they didn't have a chance to see. And if they saw that, they would have responded. But what did you do? You seek to kill me. In chapter 12, we see Jesus healing a man with a shriveled hand in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he asks the religious leaders whether or not it was acceptable to heal the man even though it was the Sabbath. And after the man was healed, do the religious leaders celebrate the healing? Do they marvel at Jesus' power? No. Verse 14 in chapter 12 says, they start their plot to kill Jesus. In that same chapter, Jesus heals a man made blind and mute by demons. Yet the religious leaders attribute this miracle to Satan empowering Jesus. This blasphemy of the Spirit marks a shift in Jesus' ministry as well as a certain pathway that these religious leaders would follow. They were completely committed to doing... Listen to me here. They were completely committed to doing what Herod failed to do back in Matthew 2. What does Herod try to do in Matthew 2? Right? He tells, the, he tells the wise men, go there, and when you find him, come back, because I want to worship him too. Right? When in fact, what does he want to do? He wants to eliminate a threat. Herod was, incredibly, Herod was incredibly paranoid. Killing even a wife, killing even children that he perceived to be threats. This guy was a tyrant. And you look at that, and you say, oh, what a wicked guy. But you know what? He failed. Israel's spiritual leadership didn't. Because by the time we get to the end of Matthew, they're wanting the same thing that Herod wants. 
in Matthew 2. Except they're doing it with first century versions of shirts and uh, suits and ties. They're doing it with a lot of Bible verses memorized. They're doing it with really faithful church attendance, first century Jewish style. Do you see? Throughout chapters 13 and 23, the Pharisees repeatedly and publicly challenged Jesus' authority, trying to stump him with gotcha questions. And it wasn't until chapter 23 where we have Jesus proclaiming seven woes against them for their spiritual abuse of the people, for their hypocrisy, for their culpability in killing the prophets and teachers sent by God. But rather than repent of their sin, which they should have done, they become even more angry. They become even more resolute in their quest to kill the king of the Jews. And so the way that they arrested him, the way that they put him to death was much like how they lived. They plotted to arrest him and kill him by stealth, yet having the appearance of honoring the law by taking Jesus before the high priest and finding him guilty of blasphemy. Now, this is the amazing part. Because certainly we recognize a darkness in the spiritual leadership at this time. But their darkness even extended after his death. In chapter 27, Matthew records how the chief priests go to Pilate. And they say to Pilate, we remember when this man was alive, he said that in three days he was going to raise from the dead. Now that's remarkable, seeing that the disciples and Jesus' followers really didn't process that as well as the chief priests and spiritual leaders did. So what do they ask Pilate to do? They ask Pilate, can we have guards, or at least station some guards there? And Pilate says, okay. That's why the guards were there. Because the chief priests were afraid that Jesus' followers were going to come, take his body out of the tomb and say, see, he rose, just like he said. What happened? Jesus rose like he said. Those guards couldn't keep him from raising from the dead. That stone couldn't keep him in the tomb. And yet, in chapter 28 of Matthew, we read that the chief priests and leaders, after all this takes place, goes to those guards, bribes them, saying, tell people you fell asleep. And if there's any issues, we'll take care of it. Like, their spiritual darkness goes even beyond the resurrection. Here, we have two groups of people represented in Matthew 2. In the Magi, we have the uninvited guests, right? Those who, from an eye standard or a cultural standard, aren't likely to be followers of Jesus Christ. Yet they see their Savior for who he is, and they recognize his lordship over the way they live their lives. But Israel's spiritual leadership, in them we see those who should be hosting the welcome party for the Messiah, yet instead rejecting him by putting him to death and suppressing his identity even after death. 
Like Herod, they were threatened by Jesus' authority and would not submit to his lordship. Okay, so what about us? What about us? I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 21 as we close. Matthew 21. This is only one small section of Matthew, but I think it really captures both the joy and the warning that we see in Matthew 2. Okay. Matthew chapter 21. Read verse 23 with me, or follow along as I read. When he, Jesus, entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. And while he was teaching, they said... By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? And then Jesus answers them by giving them a question. And they were unwilling to answer. But I want to skip down to verse 28. But what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in the vineyard. And he said, I will not. But afterward he regretted regretted it and went the man came to the second and said the same thing and he said I will sir but he did not go which of the two did the will of his father and they said the first Jesus said to them and the them here going back to verse 23 are the chief priests and elders Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him. And you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterward so as to believe him. There's really two points, I think, from this parable, from this lesson, and from Matthew 2 that we should take. First of all, it's possible to have accurate doctrine and still be spiritually bankrupt. It is possible to have accurate doctrine and yet still be spiritually bankrupt. Why or how? It's because when doctrine becomes data, And being right becomes more important than being changed. We run the risk of becoming just like the chief priests and spiritual rulers of the day. God doesn't simply want our heads to be filled with data about a historical figure 2,000 years ago. Nor does he want us to simply model three wise men from the East by giving gifts to one another. He wants us to change to become more like his son, Jesus Christ. And that's what teaching, true teaching of the word, does through the power of the Holy Spirit. And this was the ongoing criticism of the spiritual leadership in Matthew. They talk a good game, but their life does not play it out. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, he says, therefore, summing it all up, 
And he talks about the house built on the rock versus the house built on the sand. And those who hear my word and do it are like those who build the house on the rock. But those who hear my word and don't do it are those who build their house on the sand. Brothers and sisters in Christ, when we see this, even as we have seen it this past year and a half working through the book of John, may we be appropriately warned so that we may persevere in obedience. Not to earn our salvation. I can't earn favor with God. But I should be warned because it's easy to have a checklist of all the things that I should do and expect it of all of you too. And have that be the goal. As opposed to, God, change me. And change us through your word. It's possible to have accurate doctrine and still be spiritually bankrupt. We're warned in this way in Matthew 2. But we rejoice also in Matthew 2 with this second point. Remember what we had to bring Jesus when we first came to him. Remember what we had to bring Jesus when we first came to him. You say, wait a second. The Magi had some really nice gifts. Is that what you're talking about? No, that's not what I'm talking about. But consider who wrote this gospel. Matthew, who was what? A tax collector. So when Jesus says what he says in Matthew chapter 21, there isn't as much the sting of rebuke as there is the rejoicing in the grace and goodness of God. Tax collectors and prostitutes will enter the kingdom of God. That's what I used to be. And that's how we as Christians should respond in this as well. That's what we once were. But God, through salvation, changes us. But what was I like when I first came to Christ? I mean, in your nativity scenes, I'm guessing the three wise men are probably wearing clothing, you know, the way they're depicted, they're probably wearing clothing that's different than, say, the shepherds or even Mary and Joseph. Probably wearing, like, you know, stuff that kings would wear or dignitaries would wear. They didn't have to put the garb of the rabbis on. They came as magi, as Gentiles. But they came leaving as worshipers of Jesus. So God will change those that come to him. But we should never forget what we used to be when we came to him. Let's rejoice that we do see on this 800th anniversary of the Nativity. Let's rejoice that we do have the Magi. And that we when we see them, think, wow, thank you, Lord, for including me for those who are in Christ. But let's also not forget about the characters, frankly, that should have been there. The chief priests, Israel's spiritual leadership, the ones who, if you're asking Jews of Jesus' day, man, where are they? They weren't there because they weren't true worshipers. May we be warned and then prompted to be true worshipers. Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this familiar story. 
Lord, we thank you for our time in the Word. God, again, change us through it. I pray, Lord, that you might be given glory in it. As we have been called to go make disciples, may we rejoice in not only the change that you make, you have made in us, but Lord, we think of those, and I'll use the verbiage of this, of, of this passage, we think of those who are currently tax collectors and prostitutes. The people who have not come to Christ yet, but you are calling us to, to share Christ with. And as we see your church built, Lord God, give us a greater love because of what we have been saved from. And Lord, give us joy as we see souls to come Christ. Lord, we rejoice for those in 2023 that have come to Christ here at Grace. We rejoice for those who've obeyed the Lord, honored the Lord in baptism. God, thank you for the change that you're making in these souls. Continue to change all of us to become more like Jesus Christ. But Lord, may we never forget what you have saved us from, and may we continue to grow in our salvation. We thank you and love you in Jesus' name. Amen.